as you're aware, Pastor, is enjoying India. They made it to Rampart, where our church there is at. And I know this because I saw a picture from Jonathan, his son. Um, but they are doing some great ministry. They are, they are preaching. They are touching lives, uh, meeting with people, doing some, some great things. It had been about three years since Pastor had been able to be there in person. He talks with the pastor there on a weekly basis. But uh, to go in there in person has been just an ama amazing blessing to them there. I want to reemphasize an announcement that was on the screen this, this morning that on Christmas Eve, it falls on a Sunday, we are not having any morning services. So if you show up in the morning, you'll need to come back later because nobody's going to be here. So make sure that you uh, avail yourself of the cards that are out there, share them with family and friends, invite them to come. Uh, the times are on the card, so uh, make sure you're tracking on that for Christmas Eve. It's going to be a great time of worship and preparing our hearts for Christmas Day. Also, uh, I say this in light of what Linda just said about uh, being in a foreign country and how they pack themselves into the church because they're so eager and hunger for the word of God that they will, they will pack themselves in. Uh, in American churches, our packing in has a limit, about 80% uh, is about the limit most people want to feel comfortable with. Um, but uh, I've looked at the uh, stats, the numbers for the last three years, and what happens is we, there's a couple times we hit that 80% and we drop down. Well, that's normal. In American churches, we hit the 80%, we'll drop down, and we bottom out about 60%. What does that mean? We're in a good place that we have a lot of people wanting to come, but we don't have the space. And so we're going to three services January 7th. That is an exciting thing. Yes, it is more, and we need some help on that. But it's an exciting thing that we have people that are desiring to be, to for the true word of God. There's a lot of churches out there that will tickle your ears. But we know that what you get from here is solid, and the true counsel of God from the word, and, and people are hungry for that, hungry for the truth, hungry to be engaged in a way, and we need to make room. So our services are going to be at 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and 12 o'clock. So when you heard Paul's, Paul's uh, study he's going to do, it's starting at the second service, that's why. So at 10 o'clock, so you need to avail yourself either at 8 or 12 uh, for those services. So make yourself part of that. I'm not preaching today. We have an amazing person all the way from Albania. <laughs> he was telling me today he's no longer from Albania. He's been here for 15 years, but he lived in Albania for 17, so he's not quite from here yet. He's got two more years to balance that out. <laughs> Johan's going to come share. You may remember Johan shared at our missions banquet this past year. He shared another uh, couple of weeks after that on a Sunday morning. So, Johan, come. Your word that you have today is amazing. Thank you. All right. Well, I don't know when that's going to balance off, right? Because I think December 8th is our 15-year anniversary of being here. So I'm looking forward to the time and somebody will be like, yeah, you're from Colorado. But I think part of it is also um, if I send my family a picture of what's behind us, they think that we're all died and we're all frozen to death. Um, just for reference, I grew up about 30 miles away from the Adriatic coast, right, where Italy and all these places are. Unfortunately, I grew up on the poor side of things, 
But still, I think I saw snow once in my life. And so my parents have this little widget on their, on their computer that shows what the temperatures are. You know, and in Celsius, it gets scary. I mean, because you still, it's like it's 19 degrees. But when you see minus 12 or minus 15, I get these texts and calls saying, you die, you alive, what's going on? Anyway, so I, I'm still not used to that, but mostly, mostly good. So again, my name's Johan. Um, we've been here for about 15 years now. My wife is Croatian. One of my sons was born when we were in Mission Field in Macedonia. And two of them were born uh, over here just across the street in the hospital. So the five of us, I think we have good hopes that two could be presidents in the future. Uh, okay, so, so watch out for that. Um, yeah, um, I wanted to reiterate, go on a mission trip. Um, I am a result of people going on a mission trip. Um, I know we have this tug of war now of, well, how does it make sense for me to fly out there? Da, 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 da. I've heard it all. I've heard it all. And of course, you want to use common sense. But I'm a result. Now, if you think I'm not good looking, I'm not nice now, you should have seen me before missionaries came. And partially a joke, but partially truth. And you've heard this before from me, is I was on this path of either becoming a Muslim or becoming a Christian. And because missionaries came, my life changed, and my destiny changed, and I'm here because a family, a dad and two kids came and said that Jesus loved me. As basic as that. I don't even remember their names anymore, honestly. But I remember what they did and what they said. And so, go on a mission trip. It will change you, but it will change somebody's destiny forever. Um, so, consider that. Um, I don't have any political things to say. I'm not very good at that. Perhaps because uh, my grandfather went to prison back in communist times, so I'm kind of not doing that. But what I want to say is your pastor and others are in the largest country, I think, right now, 1.4, probably, I don't know when they overtook China, largest country in the world, um, with the most um, punishments for people that bring people to Christ. Um, the ministry I work with right now, 42 pastors were in prison last week in northern India for bringing the gospel. And so, um, we do want to pray for that. I mentioned this in first service as well. Close by Afghanistan, somebody I worked with is in his 460th or 70th day in imprisonment for sharing the gospel. Um, and so, this is the harshness of the reality that we face, but also the joy that we can bring in the transformation we can bring in people's lives. Um, so let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you go and seek the lowest one of us in the countries that perhaps none of us know exist. Um, and Father, we thank you for your heart and for your love to bring everybody out of darkness and into your light. So Father, we just don't want to pray for a pastor and pray for the rest of the team, the local pastors in India, Lord, and uh, those who suffer for your name's sake and those who suffer to make your name known. Will you bring comfort to them, Lord? Lord, will you open doors, windows, uh, will you give dreams where they need to be given, Lord? Pray a blessing on them. Pray a blessing. Um, and thank you for your word that is true and real and able to change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I'm a little bit jet-lagged. I just came back from Albania. Sometimes Tuesday or Wednesday. I don't know what day it was at this point. Um, 
this morning I thought I was in Albania, but I wasn't. I was here. Um, and so every time I go there, there's good things that I remember, and there's bad things. Sometimes I get reminded why I moved here and I'm not there. Um, but one of the good things there is you go and buy coffee, go buy something, um, and you'll pay, I don't know, $9.98 for a coffee, and then you'll give the two cents to the cashier, and they'll be so grateful. They'll be grateful that you gave them something that you thought of them. Um, which, me being here now, about 15 years, I'm used to people telling me, well, if you can't tip, just don't go out, right? Um, as a matter of fact, some of these delivery services now, they prompt you. I don't know if you've seen this, but they prompt you. If you don't tip well, don't expect good service, which means they'll spit in your food. So I've learned to tip 18%, otherwise people come after you. Okay? And so not the case in some, most countries. Um, so I'll end up going there, and my American training will kick in, and I'll leave 20%. And then my brother will look at me and say, what are you, a drug dealer? Stop leaving this much money. So leave 20 cents. That's, that's good enough. Um, but the response of the people there is gratitude for very small things. We just heard it. It's gratitude for just having a church, for just gathering together. It's gratitude for being able to sing. There's churches in China where you can't sing out loud because somebody will hear and, and you'll end up in prison. And so there's this attitude of gratitude. Now, me now, from being here um, in the States, I've learned a little bit more of a response of entitlement. I'm not going to point at him. I'm just going to criticize myself. Okay? Um, here's my best story of being entitled. Um, in the beginning, you know, I'd, you know, obviously we didn't have all these big supermarkets, so I'd end up at like a super Walmart or whatever, or super Target, and you'll see a person at the returns line with half a banana. And they just come up, I didn't like it, and then they get their money back. And so I've learned that this is a very good tool to use, right? So back a while ago, um, my wife bought a tree for our backyard. I don't remember what tree it was, but it didn't live. What lived was a twig about this size with a little sticker. So she says, hey, whenever you go, can you just return this tree for me? I thought I'm just going to carry this big tree and bring it over at Costco and just put it down. No, it was a little twig. So I end up going to Costco. I gather all my courage because, you know, just looking stupid with this little twig. I, I still do it. Take it. You know, other people in front of me are returning whatever they're returning. So my turn comes up. I have a little twig. And the customer service guy says, what do we have there, a twig? I said, no, it's a tree. It's a tree. It just didn't make it. And so to make things worse, I didn't know how much I was going to get back. So I got a whole $6 back. And so I felt very embarrassed, but I also felt very entitled. So my response was entitlement. And so a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting right over there, and the pastor mentioned David from the Bible. And my son, who is 17, looks at me and says, isn't it the guy who killed somebody to take his wife? She said, yeah, I mean, we're sitting here. I don't have a lot of time to explain. So I said, yes, yeah, 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 it is. And so I walked away and I was like, well, I got to figure out because 
it seems to me it's not right that we make a guy who broke a couple of the biggest commandments our hero. And not only that, we don't make it, the Bible makes him the hero. And not only that, but Jesus comes from the lineage of David. So what's going on here? I can't encourage my son to do what David did. Maybe I can encourage him to be like David because from what I read, he was a great guy. He was beautiful. He was a poet. He was a warrior. He did all sorts of stuff. But still, there has to be something in David's life that made him who he is in our eyes and in the Scripture's eyes. And so I started digging into this and I started realizing, one, that the Bible gives us the whole story about these heroes. We don't get only the perfect, beautiful Instagram story. We don't only get the pretty things when they sit out in nice hotels and drive nice cars. We get the dirtiest part of our heroes. Moses, Abraham, David, King Saul, we see all their best and we see all their worst. We read all of that. So that's one thing that we learn in the Bible. And number two is they usually come in pairs. You have Abraham and Lot. You have Jacob and Esau. And as I was looking at the story of David, Saul, King Saul kept popping up. And so I couldn't ignore it. King Saul and David matched together. And they both have very similar stories. They both start very similarly. One, they were both herders. We learned that Saul finds Samuel while he's looking for his father's donkeys that have lost. We find David doing most of his mighty deeds when he's out shepherding out in the mountains. Both were the best of Israel as we'll see from Scripture. They're both portrayed as very handsome men. They're both portrayed, Saul's portrayed as this big guy ahead over everybody else. They were both the best that Israel had to offer. Samuel, the prophet, anointed both. He went and found them and anointed them both. Both became king at 30 and both ruled for 40 years. Both started strong, but somewhere down the line, took a left turn, and had a lot of problems. And both of them were called out for their sin by God's prophets. Saul's story starts as the nation of Israel is at a crossroads. They have had enough of judges. As a matter of fact, the last judge and his children, he, he was okay, but his children were very unfair to Israel. And Israel said, we don't want that anymore. So how about Samuel, you ask God for a king? We want a king. We want to be like the other nations. And so God finds them a king. He doesn't find them any sort. He finds them again the best that Israel had to offer. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, we read, Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found in all of Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. 1 Samuel 10, 
Verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you to rule over his inheritance? In verse 9, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined them in their prophesying. They ran, in verse 23, they ran and brought him out. As he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. I guess the Israelites had to think about being tall. Um, Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king. The Israelites are filled with hope that the corruption that had been on them so far, the loss of the ark, all of these things were behind them. And this beautiful man is going to come and rescue them. Everybody's energized, ready to go. They find a man who actually, when we read, is a great person. We read how Saul gets picked by, uh, by Samuel and he just goes back. He doesn't tell anyone that he's picked to be the first king of Israel. He gets anointed by Samuel and he goes back and works in his father's fields. Later on when they ask him, to, they tell, oh, right, come, come, come forward. He's hiding. He's a humble guy hiding. But yet, he's able to rescue Israel, bring the ark back, push back the Philistines and all of the other enemies of Israel. In the same way, we read about David and his anointing. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Now again, things have happened here between chapter 10 and 16 of 1 Samuel. And Saul has done certain things to where God has intervened. Verse 7, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. And now Samuel is in front of Jesse and he's looking at all of his uh, sons. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel had said to him, the Lord has chosen none of those. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? And Jesse says, they're still the youngest. He's standing to the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We'll not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him, and he had brought him in. He was glowing in health and had a fine appearance and had handsome features. So again, we're looking for a pretty boy. Some of us have no chance. <laughs> then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. Again, notice the similarities. The Spirit of God came powerfully on Saul, prophesied the Spirit of God came powerfully on David. Very similar pathways 
up to this point. And yet, in chapters 13 and then 15 of 1 Samuel, we see things boiling over for Saul. Things are just not where they're supposed to be. In 1 Samuel 13, we hear and we read about Saul being so confident with himself. He brings 3,000 of his choice soldiers, stands on the hill and tells everybody, look at me, look at what I have. As a matter of fact, he gives his son Jonathan a thousand and says, you go fight over there. And the Philistines at this point have had enough of this guy bragging. So they decide to come out full force. So they bring out 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So then the Israelites look at this. And it says in this chapter that they all start hiding. They all start running away. Some of them hide in caves. Some of them hide in pits. Some of them hide in cisterns. And all of a sudden, Saul looks back, and there's only 600 people. These 600 people are trembling. So Saul decides to take things in his own hands. And as Samuel had sent him and said, hey, you wait for me there for... Seven days and I'll be right there. Saul decides to do something else. His response to what God had told him was completely different. So in verse 8 of Samuel, 1 Samuel 13, we read the following. Saul waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. And Samuel is desperate, and he said, what have you done? Saul replied, when I saw the men, they were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal Island, not have sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. And Samuel is even more upset. And he said, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the Lord's command. You, if you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And appointed him ruler over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. His response cost him the kingdom for generations to come. Let me say it again. His response of not waiting for God cost him everything. We will read later that his whole lineage is gone. He falls on his own sword. Jonathan, his son, dies. All of his sons die on a battlefield. All of this because of this decision. And in chapter 15, this further escalates. He is specifically told by Samuel to go and exterminate the Amalekites. Hard, but it had to be done. And you can read about that and why and how they have treated the Israelites beforehand. 
And so Saul again decides to take things on his own hands and figure, I'm not going to exterminate everything. I'll just get rid of the bad stuff, all the animals that nobody wants, but I'll keep the best for myself, including all the animals and the king. And so Samuel knows this. In chapter uh, 15, verse 12, we read the following. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. And there he has set up a monument in his own honor. For, from chapter 13, now we see him setting up a monument for himself. And he has turned down and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul, he said, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle that I hear? And Saul said, Well, wait a minute. Now, I did it. I did what God said, but it wasn't my fault. The soldiers brought the cattle from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, not my God, your God. You see the escalation from chapter 13 to chapter 15 of Saul's response towards what God had been telling him to do. Enough, said Samuel to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord told me last night. Verse 17, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on the mission saying, Go and completely destroy these wicked people. Why did you not obey the Lord? And Saul says, But I did obey, verse 20. I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission that the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed them and brought back the king. The soldiers did it. And in verse 22, in some verses that we've read before and a lot of us know, Samuel replies, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And then Saul says, well, yeah, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command. I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. He says, now I beg you to forgive my sin and come back. Saul's escalation from where he was and where he was picked as the king of Israel has ended up with him in this position. And it was all because of his response. And at the same time, we see David come to the scene. We see David being picked and we see one of the saddest things in the Bible. The Spirit of the Lord has been removed from Saul. I don't know, but when I read this, I was so burdened because I said, the only thing I don't want is the Spirit of the Lord to be removed. I can deal with anything. I can't deal with this. I don't want the Spirit of the Lord to be removed. Now, David 
had his own problems. 2 Samuel 11, we hear and we read about one of the most famous stories in the Bible. King David had gotten comfortable in his position. He has sent all his men to war. He doesn't feel like he needs to be there anymore. And so one of his nights where he has nothing to do, he looks out of the window and sees a lady that he likes. Problem is she's married. How does he solve this? Sends her husband to war. Her husband gets killed. Takes her in. And she gets pregnant fairly quickly. Again, that's Bathsheba and her husband Uriah that was killed. And just as in the model of Saul, where Samuel kept coming to Saul and saying, you've done wrong, you better fix this. Nathan the prophet shows up for David. In 2 Samuel 12, Nathan comes and he perhaps doesn't face him right on, but he says the following. He starts with a parable. He says, there was a very rich man, had many cattle, had many lambs, a lot of livestock. Then you have a very poor man with one lamb. This lamb was always with him. He would feed whatever he had to this lamb, the most precious possession. Now, the rich man, when people come to town, he decides not to kill any of his animals, but he takes the animal from this poor man, slaughters it, and feeds it to his guests. What should we do? And David says, as long as I live, a man who does this dies. And in 2 Samuel 12, verse 7, Nathan says, David, you are that man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hands of Saul. Again, very similar to the narrative of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah, and if this had been too little, I would have given you more. Why do you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil in his eyes. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. What you did in secret will be done in broad, light, broad daylight before Israel. Now, here is the difference. What is David's response? Verse 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. But more than that, in one of the most beautiful psalms and scriptures ever written in Psalm 51, a psalm of David, that's the title, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now Saul, keep in mind, had all sorts of excuses. His response was, I try to do it. It wasn't my fault. I couldn't wait anymore. Everybody was scared. David breaks down completely. And in verse 1 of Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy on me, O God according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. Against you, only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And in verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And again, we read how the Holy Spirit was taken away from Saul because he didn't obey. And an evil spirit obsessed him and, and tortured him. And the Holy Spirit was taken away. And, and David's biggest fear here is for his, God's Holy Spirit not to be taken away from him. Saul's response in 1 Samuel 15, verse 30. I have sinned, but please honor me. Honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. David's response is, do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. From this story and all the biblical stories, where again, all of our heroes' sins and problems are out for us to all see and for all of us to read. Keep in mind, we're reading David's story thousands of years later. And his shame is out there. So is Saul, so is Abraham's and Moses, including with all of the things that they did for God. Guarantee number one is that we'll all take some sort of side road. We'll all fall at certain times in our lives. If the most beautiful men in Israel did it, I'm probably going to do it. And I'm not ahead over anybody. And that goes for all of us. We all fall. And as I was praying about this this last Friday, I was trying to justify why David was who he was. Because I was trying to tell my son that yes, there's a reason why David is who he is. And that's for sure. Because David's response was the way it needed to be. But I got overwhelmed with this feeling that a lot of us are more like Saul than like David. A lot of us have been promised by God in the past. We were called by God and we stood ahead over everybody else. Maybe not physically, but in the spirit. A lot of us were picked before everybody else for God's purposes. But yet, we hid behind the luggage like Saul did. And yet, we couldn't wait for God to come through. And yet, we wanted to hold things to ourselves like Saul did. Now, most of these times we expect all of our heroes in the Bible to be anointed, appointed, anointed, and approved by God with a beautiful Hollywood ending. They walk out in the sunset, and that's the story, but that's not the story here. It's not the story for Saul. It's not the story for David to a certain extent. They get anointed, then they get attacked by circumstances, by people, by enemies, spiritually, physically, and all of that. So what are we supposed to do? And again, my burden for today for all of us is to examine our hearts 
and figure out where we land. Now, I think a, a minority of us will be Davids. That will plow through and we'll be successful and the Lord will give us inheritance. So again, my exercise started in that. And I can tell you right now, the reason why David became who he became was because of his response. Because he said, I am broken down, Lord. You do what you want with me. And out of his lineage, Jesus came. But what happens with some of us that feel like Saul? Three things, just as an old school preacher. Three points. One, remain patient. Now we read about Saul that he wasn't impatient, but he was not patient enough. We read, again, and I talked about this at the beginning, he was patient enough. Samuel told him, hey, you're going to be the next king of Israel. Out, run out and say, I'm the next king of Israel. Do whoever thought I was not going to be anybody, I'm the next king. He kept it silent. He came back and he didn't say anything. Saul anointed him. He went back. He worked his, uh, Samuel anointed him. He went back and plowed the, his dad's fields until they called him back. But at a certain point in his journey, he had no more patience for God. When things got the worst, he had no patience. We are stuck sometimes because we feel that God hasn't answered in the right time. That our Samuel hasn't shown up at the seven-day mark. And we take things over and we mess them up. Patience is not easy, it's hard. But that's when you lose or win your kingdom. Saul could have had a kingdom that lasted forever. His lack of patience caused him to lose it. Remain patient. Even when things are dark and even when you're surrounded by enemies. Number two. Be quick to repentance and change. Saul always had an excuse. It wasn't me. You didn't show up in time. The soldiers took everything. I tried to do what was right. I was taken over by this. I was taken over by that. I don't want to repent. I want to be honored. He blamed the soldiers. He blamed Samuel. And then when he was pushed, he realized, well, yeah... I might, I might have sinned, but, but don't embarrass me. Don't embarrass me. And number three is practice forgiveness. Now, see, Saul was obsessed with David and killing him. All of this started when they came back in the city. 1 Samuel 18, verse 7 through 9. As they danced, they sang Saul has slain thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They had credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from this time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. So Saul becomes consumed with getting David. Seven times he tries to kill him. Seven times... He runs after him. 
And yet David's response is completely different. We hear of two instances when David is this close. One of them, they're hiding out in En Gedi, and they're hiding underneath this waterfalls, and Saul and his army come through, and David comes this close. He even comes and cuts part of his cloth, of his, of his robe. And then he realizes even that is too much. I'm not listening to God. God says, don't touch this man. His response was to forgive once, twice, three times. We hear him come out of the cave and say, hey, I could have gotten you. Later on, same thing. He goes into the camp. He gets Saul's water jug and then says, I could have gotten you. But his response in 1 Samuel 24, verse 12 is, May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. And every time, Saul goes back and forth. You're a better man than me. I'm sorry. I won't do it again. You're a better man than me. I, I'm sorry. I won't do it again. And yet, he couldn't let go. He couldn't, he couldn't forgive. So here's the difference. In the response, how do we respond to God? Saul's disobedience, unforgiveness, and impatience led him and his family to destruction. David's response, even though with consequence we read in the Bible that his firstborn to Bathsheba died. But his ultimate response led to Solomon who built the temple for God. So my answer to my son, he's not here today, would be yes, David was that guy. But his response changed his destiny. Saul's response destroyed his destiny. And so, as I was praying about this, I said, Lord, I feel more like Saul. I feel more like I hide from you. I feel more that I find excuses. So, Lord, help me. And I feel like there's some people in here today that are in the same position. And so this is your chance. Do not go down Saul's path, either in rebellion and disobedience, unforgiveness, or impatience with the Lord. Whatever he has said, he will come through. Maybe not in our time, but in his time. So I want to leave a couple of minutes here to respond to these three things. Um, so if you want to close your eyes with me, um, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are who you say you are. That your promises will always come true. Lord, when we are in the path of decision, that we listen to you. So Lord, today, for those who don't see you and have been waiting for you for a long time, I pray for patience. For those of us who have had a hard year, hard maybe few years, that we have had losses and we're waiting for you to come through and our patience is running thin. I pray for your patience, Lord, 
I pray for Samuels to come through. Father, I pray that you are close to us when we're about to give up and do our own thing and do our own way. And Father, for those of us whose hearts have been hardened, hardened towards repentance and change, that find excuses all over every single day for our sins, for our disobedience to you. Give us a heart of repentance. Change our hearts. We will become people that are according to your heart. Keep us close to you, Lord, in repentance and change. And Lord, for those whose hearts here, our hearts have been hardened to repentance and to forgiveness, forgiveness for things that have been done to us. Let us not carry on until our death in our anger towards people, but Father, let us practice forgiveness over and over again, even if our enemies are close and even if we can exact revenge. Lord, I just pray that you would give us forgiveness. Father, we pray that you change our destinies today for those of us who are heading Saul's way. Change our destiny today. Not just for us, but for the sake of generations to come. And we trust in your kindness and your goodness that you look upon any person in this room today. And give us that grace in Jesus' name. our response, whether it be our response to our sin or response when God says to go, what is going to be your response? Because it makes a difference. So by noon tomorrow, God's going to give you an opportunity to respond. How you respond will make a difference in somebody's life, in your own life. Have an amazing week. Look forward to seeing you on Wednesday. God bless you. the snow.